Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A much-anticipated talk last week by U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, delivered at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, offered the tantalizing possibility that we'd get a first look at the results of the Biden administration's seemingly interminable policy review on China trade. Alas, with the talk over and with Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo having given some somewhat confusing interviews and a speech of her own. The picture just doesn't look that much clearer now, at least as far as I can see. Now, while both Raimondo and Tai did make some very encouraging remarks, with Tai introducing new words like recoupling and phrases like durable coexistence, she also said that the Trump tariffs will remain in place for the time being, though there will be exemptions, and uh, did use the opportunity to chide China on what is by now a quite familiar litany of complaints that Beijing, she says, has failed to adequately address. So today on Seneca, we are going to be talking about the impact of the trade war and the tariffs the U.S. imposed. We will look specifically at whether, as Trump and his USTR, Robert Lighthizer, had hoped they would, whether the tariffs actually prompted companies to leave China and to relocate, ideally, back to the U.S. itself. Joining me to talk about this are two political scientists who have a keen interest in trade who have published a paper for the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego's School of Public Policy and Strategy, GPS. The paper is called Political Risk and Firm Exit, Evidence from the U.S.-China Trade War. Its authors are Samantha Vorterms and Jack Zhang, and I am delighted to welcome both of them. Sam Vorterms is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California at Irvine, uh, with a research focus on comparative political economy, development, and social welfare, her current book project, Manipulating Citizenship in China, examines the relationship between economic development on the one hand and access to citizenship rights in China. And that sounds absolutely fascinating. And hopefully, Sam, this will be something we'll talk to you about once you're, uh, you're ready. Meanwhile, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Great to have you. Jack Zhang is an assistant professor of political science and director of the Trade War Lab at the University of Kansas. 
His research focuses on international political economy, international security, Chinese politics, and U.S.-China relations. He is a product of UCSD's GPS himself, part of a crew of really impressive academics affiliated with that program. You know, we've had a bunch of them on recently. I mean, there's Michael Davidson just two weeks ago. Uh, Deb Seligson was on twice just this year. Barry Naughton was, of course, on. Susan Shirk a bunch of times. Timing Chung. Anyway, Jack, great to see you again, and welcome back to Seneca, or welcome to Seneca. Uh, I have a fond memory of you visiting me. I can't remember what year that was, that Baidu, uh, seven or eight years ago, maybe? Yeah, 2015. I uh, was doing my Fulbright at, at Beta that year. Longtime fan of the show, and thanks for having thanks for having us. I seem to remember we spent a good 20 minutes talking about a strategy video game, though. Is that? Is that... Oh yeah, Total War. Oh, I, yeah. I wish I had time to play Three Kingdoms <laughs> these days. It's it's very okay. sad. We'll do we'll do that on this, another podcast. Anyway, be, yeah. before we get into the paper, well, first of all, uh, w- welcome. Welcome to Seneca. So um, before we get to the paper, I'm wondering, how do each of you read USCR Catherine Tai's speech from last week? I'm sure you've both spent a little bit of time parsing it. I mean, I found it to be kind of a Rorschach. What were your interpretations? I mean, I, I wonder if there's any daylight between what the two of you thought. Sam, why don't we start with you? Okay. So in the Q&A after Ambassador Tai's talk, she mentioned that she's a highly practical person. Uh, and that was yeah. that was my primary takeaway from the whole endeavor. The approach that was laid out had strategic ambiguity in it, keeping all tools on the table, giving enough wiggle room for the administration to move forward. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting was just the repetitive emphasis on multilateralism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And so one of my big takeaways was also, who is this talk for, right? So of course, we're sitting here hoping for policy details to come out and this scorecard on, on phase one to be discussed in a little bit more detail. But the intended audience, I think, was also to the much broader community of how this administration is really focusing on that multilateralism that was neglected in the previous administration. Yeah, some people have called it Trump with allies, as, as it were. But uh, <laughs> interestingly, the, the, she didn't make any mention of whether the steel and aluminum tariffs would be taken off of the poor Europeans either. But okay. Yeah, and the... I think the most frustrating piece is the fact that, you know, the starting point, uh, as Ambassador Tai pointed out, is working within the the tariff regime that that we're currently in and that the last administration left. Uh, And on the one hand, I can understand it because institutions are the way that they are. And as an institutionalist, right? Anytime a rule goes out there, it, it creates winners and losers. And then the institutions themselves, because of the distributional consequences, have long lasting impacts, right? They are yeah, self reinforcing. Yeah. And so, you know, Ambassador Tai said, well, this is where we're starting. We're starting with tariffs because that's the structure that currently exists. And I understand that mindset, but I also wonder if it has to be that way. And the administration does have significant tools to work around that structure or to change that structure. And of course, she was very hesitant (laughs) to give any details of working outside of that framework. Jack, what about you? What did you make of it? Yeah, I think I 
I want to echo sort of your insight at the uh, in the intro about the the speech being a Rorschach test, and I think Sam's characterization of strategic ambiguity is a really apt phrase here as well. I I thought that a lot of the headlines that came out of coverage of the speech emphasizing recoupling and reengagement miss the remarkable continuity um, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. right in the in the policy positions that she really is talking about and in some areas right where the the Biden administration seems to be willing to go even further and more more towards industrial policy than the Trump administration. I want to highlight two areas that that I thought was pretty remarkable in terms of continuity, right? The first is the reintroduction of the tariff exclusion process, mm-hmm. which I've written about elsewhere as a pretty smart move to create collective action problems among businesses that would otherwise be opposed to tariffs, right? Because instead of spending political resources and having their uh, associations counter, you know, uh, advocate against tariffs, instead, you'll have a bunch of companies using political resources to get exclusions and run the rat race of, at least in the Lighthizer USTR, a very small probability of actually getting products excluded. There's all sorts of concerns about how the process was transparent, not transparent and arbitrary. And so it'll be, you know, it'll be curious to see what the what the rules are going to be. But I think the big strategy is still the same and and has this collective action problem sort of built into it. Um, the second thing to highlight is I thought Dan Rosen had a really good question that she sort of artfully dodged in the end about purchase commitments, right? Because those were a big part, about a third of the of the text in um, the phase one agreement is about these purchase agreements right. and the pernicious sort of problems of trade diversion. So I, I have a piece with the um, Wilson Center Asia Dispatches blog highlighting some research that a student here at KU has done, which shows that China's targeting of Australia with sanctions, I think eight out of the nine sort of products targeted were products that are covered by the phase one deal. So uh-huh. we, we call it sort of robbing the Australian Peter to pay the American Paul, right? <laughs> so it hits an American ally with, you know, with tariffs and try to satisfy the terms of the phase one deal. And China probably sees that as a win-win, right? But um, it highlights this problem of bilateralism that she didn't really sort of address whether that's going to continue or not under the Biden administration. It flies in the face of the multilateral approach that they seem to be advocating. Exactly. So you say that the exclusion process was, the exemption process was, was opaque and not very transparent, but I, I thought it was pretty transparently the case that, you know, if your products are commonly purchased consumer items that are going to hurt Americans or especially voting Americans around Christmas, they will be excluded. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so you're the trade guy, so I'm going to focus on you for now, Jack, and we'll be back to you in a second, Sam. But um, before we get too much further, okay, so you've got this paper. Uh, This really important concept in the paper, though, is you distinguish between the trade war, on the one hand, the blunt force of the trade war, and the specific imposition of tariffs. So the paper itself looks at how multinational companies and their supply chains have responded to the blunt force of the trade war and to the specific tariffs imposed in 2018 and 2019. So you assume these can be treated as two separate things. I'm not sure I understand completely what the trade war is separate from the tariffs. What What is that? Is it just sort of the optics of just like belligerence or, or what? 
Yeah, we see it as uncertainty, and the trade war, um, as as I understand it, has a number of dimensions. Right, or this effort of decoupling the U.S. economy from China have a trade dimension, and that's the Section 381 tariffs, but also 232 and other measures coming out of the USTR. There's also an FDI dimension or an investment dimension. Right. Um, and here we see a, a move towards CFIUS investment screening, right, on the one hand, and then scrutiny about U.S. sort of U.S. companies and and who they partner with and where they invest. In China, there's also an export. Was it called an entities list right. Uh, dimension, right? Of blacklisting. This is out of commerce, right? Blacklisting certain Chinese companies that are practicing things that we uh, we don't like, either on the human rights grounds or on security grounds, and preventing American businesses from doing business with Chinese counterparts. There's a currency dimension of finally declaring China a currency manipulator, a thing that's been debated endlessly for for sort of decades, and you know, in some ways, comes late, right? Where China certainly was guilty of of um, undervaluing the, the renminbi maybe a decade ago, but or, today that's less true. But there, nonetheless, the Treasury came out and did that designation. There is also a people's to, to people uh, sort of this whole of government thing is pernicious, right? The the DOJ Justice Department uh, and the China Initiative has gotten a lot of flack, I think rightfully so, recently because it casts a pretty broad net about academic collaboration, about Chinese working in American universities and companies. And there was an active effort to try to exclude, deny visas, investigate and, and harass, I think, uh, Chinese and Chinese American folks involved. So it is the trade war is much more than the than the than the tariffs, the Section 301 tariffs that we focus on. But uh, it's important to highlight, you know, historically, right, that was the big sort of uh, you know, in the intellectual framework and the warning shot that led to the series of uh, subsequent policies. Right. So a more stringent CFIUS, uh, that's that's very clearly got a strong trade dimension. And uh, of course, the entity lists and, and things like that, just all that, the, those efforts to decap Chinese technology companies, obviously, I guess I hadn't thought of the DOJ's China initiative as having a trade dimension, but obviously it does. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, so no, that, that makes it much more clear. So um just so that we know what we're talking about here for the listeners. So we're talking about uh, the tariffs themselves and then all this rest of the stuff that, that you've just mentioned. Uh, and maybe before we go too much further and just staying with you just for one second, Jack, and maybe we can try to make this nice and tight, but uh, maybe it would be a good idea to just sort of revisit the major events of the trade war. So from, I guess, people would say the opening solo might have been opening the 301 investigation in 2018, and then maybe all the way through the actual phase one agreement, which kind of put an end to the trade war, as it were, in early uh, 2020. So previously on the U.S.-China trade war, highlight. I'll try to do my best to be brief, right? We are in the middle of the largest trade war in nominal terms in history, right? This is because the U.S. and China are the most sort of economically integrated countries to go and try to do something like this. The volume of trade between the two is just huge. And the average tariff level from the U.S. and China has risen from about 3% to about 20%. So um, in nominal terms, and it's covering about two thirds of the products traded. So it's a big trade war. How did it start? The intellectual framework of the trade war is laid out by the Section 301 report that came out of the USTR in the spring of 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Section 301s enable the president to impose tariffs and quotas when the USTR deems that other nations are engaging in unfair trade practices to protect national security interests of the United States. So as part of that, they outline basically four buckets of things that China was doing wrong that justified the imposition of tariffs. And they are uneven playing field by Chinese industrial policy, 
force technology transfers, cybersecurity, and made in China 2025. And the first three things are things that date back before the Trump administration and have been long sources of complaint by multinationals in China. They're, they're also not really the traditional kinds of trade issues that you expect to see. The new part, I think, in the Section 301 tariffs and the thing that broke the camel's back is the Made in China 2025 initiative and the efforts by U.S. multinationals who felt threatened by that policy and started lobbying in the during the Obama administration to really see this as an effort to exclude uh, American companies from new emerging promising uh, markets uh, within China and and competing with them you know worldwide. So the original justification of the 301 tariffs, the first two lists were designed to target industries that would that have benefited from Chinese state industrial policy in the Made in China 2025 initiative. Right. Other things to say about this, right? The background is when this report came out, it was well received, the Section 301 report well received in in spring and I think, you know, the the blob if I remember correctly was very very excited that somebody finally somebody is taking, you know, taking the fight to China, taking these issues seriously, right? And that this pressure sort of approach is going to be uh, successful and finally get some of the reforms that have been long clamored for. Bob Davis and, and Ling Ling Wei's book is is very nice to illustrate sort of the Chinese conversations that were happening around the same time. Right. And what we had happened by the summer of 2018 is basically a breakdown, right? The U.S. thought it was going to be tougher and China was going to back down. China, for uh, reasons they outline, thought that they can tough it out. And if they don't back down, the U.S. side is going to back down. So we have this classic bargaining failure, right, that leads to a war of attrition, basically, between the two sides where they throw tariffs at each other in hoping that the other side will uh, back down uh, rather than paying sort of the cost of those tariffs, uh, beginning in summer of 2018. Rounds of negotiations go on. They don't go anywhere. When they break down, more tariffs are put into place. And so finally, going into 2019, it looks like most of the goods that are traded between the US and China would be placed under tariffs at some point. And really, the pressure sort of ratcheted up for something to be done about this, for putting some some sort of breaks on the escalation of the trade war. And I think that pressure and sort of the collateral damage of the trade war led to what was negotiated as the, the phase one agreement which came into effect in January of 2020, to make sure that the remaining sort of corners of the economy that either, both sides wanted to protect the most, right? For the US, it's consumer products that would mm-hmm. really hit the, the pocketbooks of voters. For China, it's the, the products that aren't easy to be sourced from elsewhere that, that its producers need uh, from the United States. And so, you know, to try to not have that be covered and have all of the trade under tariffs, they arrived at a deal in, you know, in January 2020. And we can unpack sort of the terms of that. But where we are now, I, I would disagree with your characterization of this as a, a putting an end to the trade war. At best, it's a truce, but it's like a fighting truce, right? Because most of the tariffs that were put into place remain in place sure, sure, sure. Um, after the phase one deal. Big parts of the, the uh, phase one deal was about these purchase commitments, which much of them have not been met. And so we are at an interesting point in the trade war because the phase one deal with all its problems is set to expire by the end of the calendar year. And so I think that lends to some urgency in the timing of the Thai Leo summit. And we'll see what the two governments are able to negotiate and and hopefully give us something better than phase one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was admirably both comprehensive and succinct. So uh, very good. (laughs) 
Sam, let's turn now to the actual data set that you guys drew on. You, your paper draws quite heavily on this foreign invested enterprises in China data set, which comes from the Ministry of Commerce, and it covers, if I'm not mistaken, the period from 2014 to 2019. Can you tell us about the data set and how you used it and maybe talk about some of its its limitations as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the origin story of the FIEC data set is... Uh, for a different project, I needed to kind of disaggregate foreign investment in China. So not just levels, but where it was coming from, and in particular, the skill need of, of foreign investment in different cities in China. And that data just wasn't available. So after some very strategic uh, by doing, uh, I came across this Ministry of Commerce website that has this census of foreign invested enterprises in China. And so the, the website is meant to operate as a lookup function where you can search the registration records um, of these foreign invested enterprises. So every enterprise that has foreign funding, at least partial foreign funding or all foreign funding, has to submit an annual report to the Ministry of Commerce. Uh, and this includes large multinational corporations, um, all of you know the big ones that you can think of, mm -hmm. Microsoft, and Exxon, et cetera. Uh, but it also includes individuals investing in firms. So it, it runs the full gamut of, of foreign invested enterprises. And so with the very gracious assistance of, of a friend, we scraped the data to put the, the data set together. Now, what was available online at that time was from 2014 through 2018. We did another round of, of data collection to get 2019. And unfortunately, the Ministry of Commerce changed their website. And so now wow. our, uh, our access to future data is limited and is a, you know, it's a, a problem for, for future data collection and future projects extending, uh, extending the data set. But it provides really rich data that wasn't accessible to, say, a poor graduate student who I was at the time, <laughs> um, who needed disaggregated data, um, looking at what type of foreign money was going where and for what purposes. So on the one hand, the data set is extremely rich. It's a census of foreign invested firms uh, that are reporting to the Ministry of Commerce. It includes things like location, like mm -hmm. where they're operating, uh, including their industry class, business operations, their investors. So we can mm. see not only the, the country of origin, but who's investing in them. Uh, we have things like joint venture status as well. So we see the domestic investors as well as the foreign investors for those joint ventures. And we also have uh, registered capital, right. for the, especially for the later years. Now, some of this data, uh, as the as the data set gets more recent, that data is fuller. Some of those earlier years, we don't have the detailed investor uh, investor work uh, or investor data. Uh, but overall, it's it's quite rich. Unfortunately, it's kind of you know the embarrassment of riches almost, where we have all of this data, but it also has very important limitations. Hmm. Uh, so the time limitation, uh, we were able to get through 2019, but 2020, we have to find an alternative way of getting this data or updating the data set. Additionally, there are some variables that we would like to know that we don't have, like number of employees, I think is really high on yeah. our wish list. 
So Jack and I have talked a lot about things that we would like to add to this data set. And we have a, a nice running wish list um, of things to look for and add on in the future when we have both time and resources to do it, because this is a pretty major data effort. At least for the larger companies, it would seem like, certainly for the, the public ones that are on that list, and there are, I imagine, quite a few of them, you should, though, be able to get things like turnover or even some of them will break out China as a percentage of global sales. I mean, it would be interesting to see that, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that. I, that's that's fantastic, and, and uh, I'm sure that... that this data set that you've 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 created out of, of out of this, having scraped it, will be useful to a lot of people in their work. Staying with you, Sam, in the plainest possible language. So you you looked at the impact of the trade war as an instance of elevated political risk, right? And and how it was going to impact firm exits from China. And then you also looked specifically at firms that would be impacted by tariffs and how they were you know marginally going to be impacted by the tariffs. Uh, either from the PRC or from from the U.S. Uh, so, what did you find? What what did you discover about the propensity to exit based on the blunt force of of the trade war that Jack described and the spe- specific tariffs? Yeah. Uh, before I get into the specific results, I have to uh, talk a little bit about Jack's major data effort, which was identifying which firms were likely impacted hmm. by tariffs, right? So the FIEC data set provides the, the blanket list of firms uh, and the industries that they're operating in, but that had to be joined with essentially a tariff data set. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And so <laughs> Jack's team, Jack and his team, uh, went through all of the tariffs, both coming out of the U.S. side and the China side, uh, and matched the individual project uh, products that face tariffs with their industry classes. Uh, so there are just over a hundred industry classes that different sectors are broken down into that you know distinguished between, say, woven textiles and leather textiles, <laughs> um, and you, matching the actual products with the industry classes, we can then use that industry class variable to map on to the FIEC data set. So now we have, you know, the universe of of foreign firms that are likely impacted by the trade war mm-hmm. because of the industry classes that they're in. And the problem is that we really want to isolate the effect of, of tariffs. Right. So, so one option is to narrow the sample down to just industry classes that have tariffs and compare exits before the trade war um, and after the trade war. That would show us how many tariff firms are leaving after experiencing tariffs. But the difference in the before and after includes both the effect of the tariff, right, going from zero to one on that tariff variable, and but the also war. the effect. And the trade war, exactly. The effect of time, right? What's different in our, you know, dropping out between 2017, 2018 and between 2018 and 2019? Well, there's this massive trade war that's going on with all of those other measures that Jack outlined earlier. So that variable then, you know, gets confounded by the souring relations, all of the heightened political risks, and, you know, the fear of potential future tariffs that might be coming down or might not, all of that ambiguity that we understand as, you know, the blunt effects of, of the trade war's political risks. So in order to isolate the impact of tariffs themselves, we needed a comparison group. Right. Um, so you can think of it, you know, as a control group, if you will. 
um, that will help us estimate the impact of time, that, that blunt effect. Right. Uh, so we compare changes in exits of the tariffed industries over time to changes in the exits of the non-tariffed industries over time. Non-tariffed, but uh, still affected by trade war. Exactly. Right, right, exactly. Right. Uh, and so uh, this helps us separate the tariffed effect um, from the blunt effect, that time determined offense. So what we're calculating are in these estimates is the difference in the change over right. time. Uh, and you so, guys call that difference in difference or something like that. Is that, is that yeah, right? so there's two differences. There's You take two two subtractions, two differences. One is between the tariffed and the non-tariffed industries, and one difference is the before and the after. And then you take the difference between those to get an estimate. So it's the difference between two differences. Aha. Uh -huh. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, so, drum roll, please. What were the results <laughs> and what did we discover? Yeah, so... Uh, we started by just looking at U.S. firms because mm -hmm. we think mm -hmm. that the U.S. firms are the most likely to bear the brunt because they're the most likely to be engaged in, in U.S.-China trade. Um, and what we find is that the biggest effect is the blunt trade war. Uh, and this is consistent across a wide variety of you know, statistical modeling decisions. And U.S. firms before the trade war are exiting at about 8%. We're seeing 8% of firms leaving. Um, and after the trade war, we're seeing 11% wow. exiting. Yeah. So the marginal effect there is approximately 3% just from the before and the after. Mm -hmm. um, we also find that U.S. firms that are facing U.S. tariffs don't exit at a higher rate than those without U.S. tariffs. Interesting. Yeah. So there's no statistical difference in this sample um, between experiencing tariff and not when the tariff is from the United States. Uh, we do see a small impact of tariffs when we just isolate it to Chinese tariffs. Huh. So, so uh, if you're facing, uh, so post-trade war uh, or in the trade war period, if a U.S. firm has PRC tariffs, they're exiting at a rate of approximately 11.7%. Whereas the non-tariff, those who don't have Chinese tariffs, are exiting at a 10.5%. So there's a small impact there of Chinese tariffs. So apparently the lesson to be learned here is that if you really want your firms to, to exit, you saber rattle and you, you wave the flag and ask your business to follow. And then you goad China into imposing tariffs. You don't need to do any <laughs> of your own and harm American consumers in the process. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I, I'm curious, though. Um, how fast typically do you see firms exit following on a spike in political risk or a call from the home country's government to follow the flag? I mean, could it be that you're only since you're only measuring to 2019, you don't capture the full extent of firm exit events, Jack? I mean, is that? Yeah, is that I can jump in on this. Uh the uh, short answer would be yes, right? And I think the pro the probability of a firm leaving is going to depend on what kind of industry it's in and how invested, right? How much sunk cost it has in China, how big it is. And that is actually consistent with what we find, right? So depending on how tied you are to China and how important China is for you, it's going to be different. But what we're reporting here is the aggregate effect. And so on the margins, right, only the companies that were, you know, if companies were planning to leave China already, some of them are going to leave China in that year, right? right. It's the companies that 
were maybe thinking about sort of leaving China, right? That maybe the trade war pushed over the edge, and that decision could have been made in 2019. It could have been made back in 20, you know, 2017, right? So we believe that something is going on because we have this overall rise in um, in exits. And what Sam didn't mention earlier is, right, we compare U.S. also against non-U.S. firms, big investors in China, and U.S. firms are not more likely to exit. They're not following the flag, if you will, and leaving China in response to policy. So we really believe that that suggests that the trade war's effect is an elevating political risk for all the companies that are operating in China. And then whether you exit or not, you're going to be marginally more likely to do so, you know, for any variety of reasons. We don't have those mechanisms sort of well identified and specified, but we can imagine sort of what those might be, right? But this is why we also don't see, ironically, in the sectors that you would expect the trade war to be the fiercest, manufacturing, information technology, the probability of exit in those are actually less than hmm. industries that that are not central to the trade war. And it's because, you know, the companies there are probably much more invested and have more capital sort of at stake in China and they can't leave as fast. But we are only looking at the short-term sort of impact, the one year out pre phase one deal impact of the, of the trade war. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, you have a limitation in the data set that you have. So yeah, exactly. Right. Interesting that, that uh, you saw a lot these, that American companies weren't exiting, you know, any, any more than, their foreign counterparts. Could we attribute part of this? And is it possible to to tease out the effect of unfriendly domestic Chinese policy on stimulating these things? Or, or do you roll that in as part of the negative environment of a trade war? Is that considered in it? It would be possible, right? It, it, because we, um, yeah, the second difference we're comparing is just across time periods. And so the differences in treatment, um, you know, could be it could be coming from the Chinese side and responses to uh, you know American efforts. I mean, decoupling is not just a U.S. sort of initiative, right? There's there's a lot of efforts in China to do the same thing. So yeah, so it, it's it's possible that that is happening. I will say though, the the worry I guess would be if China was differently sort of applying policies across you know across different countries of origin. But instead, I think the the evidence that we see is more consistent with the the idea that multinationals are multinational and they don't their their business models are not necessarily tied to their country of origin right, right that is right. to say an EU company could be exporting to the US market and therefore it's exposed to tariffs or a Japanese company could be importing stuff from the US and be exposed to Chinese tariffs um, that's just the nature of the global supply chain right and so this disruption is felt not just among American companies but um, among any company that's engaged in international trade. We don't look at Chinese companies, right? Because we don't have the data to do that. But I imagine some sort of version of this is playing out among domestic companies that are entirely wholly owned uh, Chinese companies, because if as long as they engage in international trade, they're going to feel the effect of tariffs. Well. Yeah, th- that makes a ton of sense. So you guys discovered pronounced heterogeneity, though, in among these firms that exited. You found that the smaller uh, firms tended to exit, and the ones that were less entrenched, that you know hadn't been there quite as long. And you also looked at at international institutions. Uh, in this case, mostly the the presence of bilateral investment treaties between two given countries, and uh, to see whether that was a factor in diminishing the propensity for any given firm to exit following a spiking you know political risk event. So, what what did you guys find there in terms of of Let's start with the, the international institutions. What did you guys find there? Sure. So we wanted to know this paper, we really wanted to identify the international sort of factors and the international drivers 
a firm exit. And so we looked at two sets, economic agreements between countries and political or security agreements between countries. And Mm -hmm. the expectation would be, you know, that both would protect sort of friendly countries that are covered by these and uh, or friendly companies rather that are covered by their, their, the shield of their home governments or if they lack that protection, maybe they will be more exposed to political risk. Right. And we only find uh, an effect that bilateral investment treaties in the trade war period reduces firm exit, which is what you would expect that if they works, right? Right. Um, and this is kind of cool because there's a big literature out there about um, about bits um, that expect that they mitigate political risk. And that's why companies lobby for their governments to negotiate them. Bits, bilateral investment treaties, right? And so bits don't have an effect uh, in the pre-trade war period when there's not this elevated risk. And then when... Ele- risks are elevated. Lo and behold, countries that have bits with China, their companies are not exiting China at a faster rate. As advertised, yeah. Right. U.S. doesn't have a bit with China, by the way. And, uh, you know, that there was in negotiations, right, the U.S. doesn't have a bit with China. The um, other finding is we thought that maybe alliances mattered, that it was certainly a central part of the Trump administration uh, rhetoric about China that, you know, you're going to have this alliance of democracies uh, all pulling together to try to decouple and, and isolate China economically. And so we looked at whether if you were a uh, a company that's from a country that's allied with the United States or a country that has a defense cooperation agreement with China. China doesn't have as many formal alliances, but DCAs, there's a there's a fair amount and it indicates sort of friendly political and military relations, right? Do those things impact whether your companies are going to leave? And the the, res- the results are, are no. Um, they don't have a, a significant effect. Uh, and companies that are from U.S. allies are no more likely to exit China than from non- non-U.S. allied uh, uh, countries. Huh. Interesting. Let's turn Sam and, and ask about the other variable that you looked at, which was entrenchment. Uh, you looked at that on the hypothesis that the more entrenched a firm is as measured by what, how long it's been operating in China and how much registered capital you'd have. I and mean, these are two things that you, you actually did have in the, in the data set. Uh, the less likely you'd see firm exit following on a trade war or tariffs or whatever other political risk mm-hmm. event you're talking about. So did that turn out to be the case? Did entrenchment matter? Yeah. So firm entrenchment uh, definitely had a significant impact on the likelihood of exit. And so we used uh, how long a firm has been operating and how much registered capital they had to kind of proxy for how integrated they are um, locally. Uh, and so in terms of entry year Firms that have recently been established, they are the most likely to exit. So if you had just registered for the first time in the previous year, uh, you had an exit rate or an exit probability of around 26%, uh, which is quite high, much higher than yeah, much higher high. than average. Um, and this is... Average being 11%. Yeah, the right? average being percent. 11%. Uh, whereas if you registered your firm, if you entered in China in 1998, you know, even before WTO um, ascension, uh, you were you had a probability of exit just around 5%. Uh, and so that we see huge differences here in how long you've been there. Uh, and we think that, you know, firms enter under different conditions, right? So you were just speaking about, you know, some domestic policies and a firm that entered in 1998 was entering under policies that are very different from the policies that exist now. Uh, there's quite sure. a bit of research out there about how 
these policies on trying to get foreign investment and to attract foreign investment and the carrots that they use uh, have changed over time. And so we think that this is kind of picking that up. Hmm. But it's also, you know, as anybody who has done, you know, any social science research or lived in China knows, this is also about guanxi, right? And so one way you can kind of protect yourself from political risk is to really build up your connections uh, and to have alternatives, to be able to shift your production when necessary, all of those types of things. And uh, you need those things take time. Uh, they take time to develop. I, I think that the, the firms that exited were just handing their business cards over at banquets with only one hand. That's the, <laughs> the faux pas, serious so, faux pas. They didn't. Right. They didn't lower their their glass of beer or baijiu when they exactly when they, when they, when they clinked. Yeah. So we, um so so far we've got okay we found that uh, a more entrenched firm is less likely to exit. Uh, a firm protected under bilateral investment treaties is less likely to exit. None of this seems at all counterintuitive to me, right? I mean, look, you know, smaller, newer, newer firms—they've got less sunk costs in China, as we said. I mean, they—they've probably not established that kind of those deep networks. So you've you've made the case pretty well that the blunt effects of the trade war had a substantial impact. The tariffs didn't add much marginal propensity to exit. One one conclusion I'm I'm hesitant to draw, and and maybe this is so. Am I premature in thinking that maybe the decoupling hasn't advanced as badly as many people have feared? Is that is that a fair conclusion so far? That it really look these these companies haven't been just pulling up stakes and skedaddling um, and following the flag, and also that maybe you know reshoring isn't happening the way that Donald Trump promised. Hmm. Yeah. So I mean I I think that's right. Jack can 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 speak to the the decoupling narrative. Uh but I'll I'll just jump in with uh you know our findings here. Yes, they're they're what we kind of expected um going into it, especially, you know, hearing all this rhetoric about decoupling and we're like, "Oh, it's not that easy to just, you know, get up and leave." Um yeah. But also, you know, the results that we find are right in line with a lot of other research out there that's looking at these effects, including other academic research by Shu Wei and also some surveys that the American Chamber of Commerce out of Shanghai has been doing. Uh, they recently asked if firms were planning on exiting China, so like looking forward to, you know, also address this. Maybe our time frame is too short here. Um, and 72% of firms in their survey uh, said they had no plan on moving any production out of China. Uh, mm. So a, a small a minority of firms have, are considering it, and only 2% said that they planned on moving all production out of China. Uh, so that's right. that's a clear minority. Um, and then in asking where they would go, none of them said that they would return to the United States. Huh. Uh, so most of them had plans to diversify in terms of moving to different regions within China or to move some of their production to other countries. But none of them reported the plans, at least, to return to the U.S. I think you're right in some way that our results are sort of consistent with the business as usual sort of narrative about what we expect happens among, uh, you know, among multinationals, how they respond to political risk. I think where they deviate from 
uh, at least the consensus and the policy thinking on this, right, is that I think policymakers have thought about the trade war primarily in national terms. Mm-hmm. Companies, uh, you know, nested inside sort of uh, company uh, countries and, and how they're going to behave. But the the literature on on business as usual really is about how companies uh, of different sizes have wildly different political resources, and their responses are going to differ dramatically. Right. What we find, right, these retrench the entrenchment results. Um, hold before and after the trade war. So basically, right, big companies do well prior to the trade war uh, escalating, and they continue to do well after the trade war. Small companies have a hard time, and they're going to exit at a greater rate, and they continue to do so afterwards. Where politics kick in is not in the way that that policymakers anticipate with the targeting of tariffs, right, on these stick parts. The only evidence we see where politics matter is in the signing of bits that are specific to things that companies care about, right? The terms of bits are, you know, have a lot of um, company input. And if you have one of these in place, it does seem to matter, right? If you don't, the other stuff that I think gets a lot of emphasis in, in this decoupling narrative just doesn't really kick in. So that's, a, that's interesting. And I'm, it doesn't surprise me, but are you really able, okay, because so now you have a gigantic number of companies to begin with, but you've already winnowed it down. You kind of know which firms are these small firms that, did exit, right? So that's maybe a more manageable number. Could you look at some of those and maybe you know, take a core sample of them and see, did they go to Indonesia or Vietnam? Uh, where did they go? And I mean, maybe that's that's outside of the, that's obviously, that is outside of the scope, but I'm, I'm just curious whether you learned the destination of firms that did exit and how many of so, them just simply dissolved? Yeah. So uh, glad you asked. Uh, we did take a sample of, um, of companies, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies, we took a sample of 500 American multinationals and try to chase down what they're doing elsewhere. Because ah. uh, an observation in our data set currently is just a subsidiary of a, of a company. We, don't, we haven't even organized that into nested into sort of parent company yet. So we likely are undercounting uh, or overcounting exits, right? The shutting down right. of a subsidiary would be counted as an exit, even though the whole company, you know, might be in China, even though they might be opening up more branches in China. So we think we have a pretty conservative measure of exit in the first paper as a result of this. Mm-hmm. But we had in, in in a second paper, we oversample sort of large uh, companies. Uh, we sample them, you know, do the sample based on uh, the uh, how representative of capital it is, right? Foreign investment into China follows like a power distribution. So a few companies account for a huge amount of the investment, right? Sure. You have a long tail of, of smaller companies making uh, small contributions. So um, we take the sample that um, uh, where uh, it reflects sort of the capital distribution uh, within China. And then we had research assistants basically like try to chase down through all available <laughs> information like 10K reports, searching through Chinese databases, searching through US databases on what, what's happening. And we are able to differentiate sort of exit a little bit more clearly, right? Uh, some of these are restructuring, some of these are renaming. So some of them are just small companies that, that sort of disappear. We do this for a couple of big multinationals in a case study that we put together where you do see over a longer period of time, right, one major multinational manufacturer of, of agricultural equipment did shut down, in, mm. not in 2019, but two years later, a, a major manufacturing facility, while it seems like they were scaling up R&D in China, as well as exporting sort of other items that were made elsewhere, right? So you see this readjustment. 
And not to go too much into the details, I think the, the, the key insight from this sample of 500 U.S. multinationals that we find is that large multinationals are already pretty well diversified. China's represents a smaller portion of their workforce. Mm-hmm. They represent a smaller portion of their total number of foreign subsidiaries. And your smaller companies by lack of, of diversification, have more of a dependency sort of on China. And that might point to why we, we see this difference in large and small companies and whether they're the propensity to exit. Because if you're a small company and 50% of your foreign production is in China, you're hit by tariffs. And as we show in our case study, and you apply for tariff exclusion, you don't get it. What do you do? The company, at least we looked at, hasn't pulled up stakes and left China yet, but one would imagine some number of, of these companies that are overexposed to China and yet uh, can't find ways around tariffs would do so. Just a couple of things more I want to highlight from the second paper. The purpose of the paper is really to unpack what multinationals can do that is not exit and also not voicing political opposition in the United States, which we find, and it's in line with other research out there, is pretty surprisingly rare. Right. We, we would think that given how common or how deeply integrated American companies are with the Chinese economy and how they've been vocal advocates for interdependence and market opening, that when the wave of protectionism comes and, and the market is closing, they would they would speak up. But it turns out that uh, this is according to work by Jubileon, right? Less than one, two percent of multi, you know, all U.S. firms have actually publicly spoken out against tariffs. It's a surprisingly small number. And that's consistent with what we find as well. And the reason I think is in the third category that we look at our paper. So if you don't voice political opposition and you don't exit China, what is it that you're doing? And we find that companies have a, a wildly different sort of set of options available depending on how, how much political resources they have. Large companies have options like using tariff uh, avoidance, uh, duty avoidance sort of schemes through foreign trade zones, through the first sale rule, through essentially trans-shipping things around their global network to try to adjust so that they have the least tariff exposure. So let's 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 dig into this. I mean, you, you talk about this Zhu Liang paper, and, and so, so he did this paper that you guys cite in yours uh, with some co-authors who are mainly also from Penn State. And he seems to think that uh, it's rare for MNCs to voice opposition to tariffs out of basically fear of political backlash, right? That, that seems to be their finding. Were your findings consistent with this observation? Is it, is it a fear of political backlash that he, his research says that ones that are, are headquartered in heavily Republican districts are less likely to voice opposition than others? Yeah, I think our results are consistent, but we look at a different set of uh, explanatory factors. We didn't look at where uh, companies are headquartered. Instead, we focus on um, something else they also find in their paper, which is big companies and small companies seems to have different options. And we think that... the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, right, the trade war and the exclusion process creates a collective action problem. And your large companies that were the most vocal and advocating for MFN access or market opening to China are the most ambivalent when it comes to China because they're shielded for the reasons I talked about earlier from some of the negative effects of the trade war. What I didn't mention is they also have a lot of leverage over their suppliers and over their customers, right? They can pass on costs much more easily and not lose business because they might be the only game in town or that they're the best at what they do. And so they're insulated from tariffs. On the other hand, they also 
have been vocal in the last 10 years, especially about problems, long festering problems that are spelled out in the Section 301 report that multinationals have with China. So they're frustrated. And they were initially the US China Business Council and and organizations like that were pretty positive on the Section 301 reports, right? They just don't like tariffs and would like to have those problems resolved and tariffs also go away. So big multinationals are ambivalent and small multinationals don't have the political resources or government relations uh, know-how or the money to employ lobbyists to really influence move policy as much. And so as a result, right, we see kind of this uh, this problem. Big companies that have the ability to change policy are sitting, we, we think, probably more likely to sit on the sidelines. Smaller companies are kind of going down and spending their resources in doing tariff exclusions and not succeeding in that either. And so you have this hollow lack of a coalition, right? Even though you're, you have surveys that show that overwhelming majorities, you know, 70, 80% of American companies don't like tariffs or say they're harmed by tariffs. You don't have anywhere near that kind of uh, coherent and organized political opposition right, to right. them. I, I had thought the same thing as I was reading your paper. I, I figured, you know, look, it can't be only that they're they're afraid of being, you know, shunned for being pro-China. I figured it might, look, because I remember what those AmCham reports looked like from 2016, right? You you saw a lot of, and even in, in, in 2017, you saw, uh, you know, USCBC and AmCham both seeing a lot of their members grumbling a lot. They figure, look, there are pros and cons to all this, but if we can remove some of the cons by changing Chinese policy through through pressure, let's do that too. And so a lot of them actually did support, you know, sort of the heavier-handed tactics. Sam, I want to ask you about, about the paper again. As political scientists, your purpose was to get us closer to being able to actually say something about the phenomenon of firm exit, whether heightened political risk or state-level conflict was actually apt to cause businesses to, you know, pull up stakes, fold up the tents and, and leave. But is China maybe just sui generis? Isn't China just given its sheer gravity and its centrality to the global supply chain, its allure just as a, a market? Doesn't that create a very different situation. It's it's far from typical, right? So, granted, the, the, the follow the flag pressure coming out of DC was also unprecedented. You know, we've all talked about this from the beginning of this conversation as an unprecedented trade war, but we end up with something, you know, maybe that just says China's force of gravity, its importance to these MNCs, is going to make companies ignore the follow the flag commands. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how generalizable that, that becomes then. Yeah, so this is this is a question of what are you actually trying to say and what is the information that you're trying to get across, right? So if we're trying to understand the relationship between tariffs and trade in the world as it is right now, right? China and the US is a necessary case, right? We have to understand this case in order to understand the role of trade and political risk in the world right now. And so for that understanding, we have to include China, even if the Chinese market makes it exceptional and unique and not applicable to others. If we're trying to understand the specific role of tariffs, right? So rather than the impact on trade more broadly, but tariffs itself, then the results from our research should be seen with caveats, right? With understanding that certain conditions are necessary versus sufficient. Right, right, right. right? So our research is showing that the 
that tariffs themselves are not necessarily sufficient conditions to push firms out. That's also to say that the local market that these firms are operating in are necessary conditions to consider as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one thing that I like about research, um, and as somebody who studies China for a living, is that this is one piece of the puzzle. Uh, and so we are adding you know, one glimpse at a really important case at a really important time uh, to say, okay, well, what does this tell us? And down the road, if we see another trade war between two other countries, uh, then the question is, okay, what holds and what doesn't? Right. Because that's an empirical question of what is actually generalizable. Um, and I think it's absolutely correct to understand our results in the context of our, of our case of ha just how important the Chinese market is, the importance of US-China trade relations, influencing global relations. But in and of itself, it adds one piece to the, the broader puzzle. So I want to wrap this up with one kind of big question for the both of you. And that is just this, just what, what's the gist of what you would say, having now completed this paper, you've written a couple of great op-eds you know, that were based on it, but what would you say if you were asked to, let's just come up with a hypothetical here, if you, if you had Gina Raimondo and, and, and Ambassador Catherine Tai in a room together, and you, they had the sit there with a captive audience for <laughs> 10 minutes, or if you were going to testify before the House Ways and Means Subcommittee on Trade, what would you say to these guys, like if you had your, your five minutes? Sure, I can start. Uh, if okay. I had 10 minutes, I'd use nine minutes to ask questions, uh, burning <laughs> questions that I had that, about this research. But um, I, if, if I were to make a policy recommendation, it would sound something like this. I, our, I think our research and others show that tariffs are not creating the kind of uh, effects on, uh, on companies as we initially thought, or as some policymakers think, and therefore it's not generating as much leverage um, as the initial architects of the trade war believed, which is one of the reasons why we have a stalemate on these negotiations, right? Because of the, you know, they're creating a lot of collateral damage without doing the, the sort of generating the political leverage that was anticipated. And the reason is because, and the need to think about um, uh, think about tariffs uh, differently than, than at least the Trump administration has, is that we can't treat all multinationals as the same, and we can't assume that they see the world in the same way as governments do in, in the world of borders that we have, right? Well, what our research shows very clearly is that the trade war has very different effects on large multinationals versus your smaller ones, and that tariffs potentially risk... Um, Serving as, I think everyone agrees that tariffs are taxes, right? But they're a regressive form of taxation and they may be hurting the, uh, those consumers and companies that are the least able to afford it and the least guilty of generating this unbalanced sort of global trading, uh, structure that we have. And the largest big multinationals that are responsible and benefit from creating this, um, uh, this this dynamic of uh, economic relations between the U.S. and China are actually doing just fine in the trade war. We should listen to them when when they say they're not planning to leave. We shouldn't expect that they'll change their minds magically two, three, four, five years down the road. And therefore, other tools might be more attractive that are less blunt uh, than tariffs uh, to achieve the the goals that the U.S. government has vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, which are totally legitimate. It's interesting that you only raise this issue of the regressive nature of tariffs 
uh, that they, you know, they hate Americans, they hit the, the very Americans who can least afford it. Here, I, you, you sidestep that issue entirely in your papers, which I thought was actually a good tactic. I think we're all familiar with that argument, but you, you introduced a completely new one. Okay, and, and to you, Sam, what would you say if you had your, your five minutes? Yeah, so uh, my comments would be right along the same lines as Jack. Uh, and in my, you know, my first uh, gut reaction would be to ask questions. And <laughs> quite explicitly, it would be, what is the, what are you trying to achieve? with the policies, because if you're trying to achieve souring economic relations, then yeah, the trade war is doing what you want. Um, the tariffs themselves are not creating the the targeted effect that a lot of, especially the previous administration um, had hoped in this leverage that, that Jack talked about and that we talk about in, in our um, monkey cage op-ed. And Instead, what we have is the collateral damage, right? Right, is the small firms, the distributional consequences. I think is where I would focus, um, and it's not just a, a question of the the aggregate trade numbers, uh, but the knock on effects, right? And exactly. One of the reasons that we don't talk about, uh, you know, the the pain felt by American consumers is well, one, our, our data doesn't speak to that. But that's an implication of our research, that when we don't see firms leaving, we the next step in that logic is that they're they're absorbing the cost and then passing the, co the cost along. Uh, so my comments would would be focused on how uh, the distributional consequences um, are really hurting the people that they weren't necessarily thinking of um, in at least, you know, the, the rhetoric that we get. Um, and the question of, is that worth the blunt effect um, and the perceived leverage uh, that the trade war gives them? Yeah. And we can link it back to uh, the Biden administration's build back better, because I think there are elements in there, right, that I think would work to attract more investment into the United States and, um, you know, improve the quality of the labor force and correct some of these structural imbalances. But the policy by framing tariffs as part of this tough on China sacred cow that you can't change and risk uh, sort of political damage, I think that's a big mistake. And I wish the administration would, in some ways, do the opposite of what the Trump administration did, which is educate the American public in a way to understand these issues, right? There was a lot of unfortunately, sort of misinformation and misframing, I think, by the previous administration that had a real effect, right? You saw unfavorability ratings of China go up from like 50% to 70% um, in the wake of the trade war. I think this administration, having inherited that, could try to frame tariffs as a thing that affects Americans, and therefore, we, we should make a judgment about whether that's the right policy or not. Um, on those terms, not on this we're, we're, we're doing tariffs to be tough on China uh, bit, which I, you know, I, I don't I don't think our uh, our research supports. Right. I mean, they, they've basically they, they took Otto Dorn and Hansen China shock and they turned it into an argument to say, well, no, let's lay all of this directly at the feet of China. I mean, it's an easier message to sell um, because it, it's it's a lot more complicated when you really break it all out. But um, you're absolutely right. The distributional consequences have come back to very much bite us in the ass right now. I mean, this is where much of what we face today as a country uh, really sort of grows out of, of that. And we hadn't thought it through. I mean, I say we, you know, we people who were, you know, sort of 
rootless cosmopolitan globalist types like me. <laughs> so, but no, but I, I look at the, the country and, you know, this resentment-fueled uprising, this populism that, it you know, this was what gave us Trump, it, which gave us January 6th. It's not even close to being spent. We have this GOP that is still just helplessly enthralled to Trump. And, you know, we have to have a better way to talk about China and American manufacturing. I mean, and the, the irony right now is that... Uh, China is sort of forestalling, or it's it seems to be in an effort to forestall those kind of distributional consequences, the negative ones from uh, its decades of neoliberalism, right? And we just, I don't know, I mean, it's it's just sort of accentuates our, our my feeling of kind of helplessness just to watch them able to do that and, and, and us seemingly unable to, where we have people like me, you know, these 10 percenters, whatever, the elites, uh, who all went to good schools and whose solution to everything is more education. And we talk, we have these kind of, these blithe kind of chestnuts that we haul out about reskilling and upskilling, which is never going to do anything. Not in the short term, we have a population that's 70% high school educated or lower. And we imagine that, you know, what, like continuing education, adult education is going to miraculously give all these people jobs. I, I don't know. I also have my doubts. I mean, you, you build back better. Yeah, absolutely. But you think that all these West Virginian coal miners are going to end up building, you know, uh, offshore wind farms off Martha's Vineyard. I just don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the, the solution. Yeah, so, I'll play the devil's advocate here, uh, Kaiser. I think, you know, you live in North Carolina uh, and I spent uh, I spent time there in, in, in school. And North Carolina and Jesse Helms were among the most vocal opponents of China's succession to the WTO because it's home to the textiles industry and the furniture industry. Two industries that have been wiped out, you know, by Chinese competition. But North Carolina has, you know, Pork. the research triangle is vibrant <laughs> and it has, you know, it has some of the best research in, you know, in uh, health tech and, you know, a number of other areas and the state is doing well relatively. So that adjustment does happen. I think we just have to make sure that the folks who are, you know, that it's not going to happen automatically, right. I think is the problem of this, you know, this assumption. Yeah, that, that I see you're, you're North Carolina and I raise you with West Virginia. I mean, it's just, it's it's really not, it's it's not even, uh, sure, of course. I mean, and that's part of the reason I moved to this state is, is I mean, I kind of And it's because of the good schools in Chapel Hill, right? That's it's, exactly uh, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and affordable and, housing. Anyway, so, Sam, what are your thoughts, though, about uh, what can we do to, to quickly you know, sort of reinvigorate American manufacturing? Because I think that, I mean, one thing that I have really learned from, from my many years on this planet is that manufacturing matters, that it is absolutely critical. If we want to sustain innovation, we actually have to make things. So we've had guests on the show like Dan Wong from Gavcall Dragonomics. I mean, you know, he talks about the importance of, of keeping process knowledge alive and warning how dangerous it is that somehow in the U.S. we've persuaded ourselves that the absolute apotheosis of innovative genius is freaking Facebook and Twitter. I mean, that all the engineers in the world who, from the best schools should go and work for freaking social media companies. Now, that, that seems just so fundamentally wrong to me. And industrial innovation is just at a, a low ebb. What do we need to do? Yeah, so uh, well, speaking well outside of my you know professional <laughs> purview here. Uh, That's what I do every week. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm I'll, I'll bring us back to where we started with Ambassador Tai's talk, right? So normally in these types of, you know, high-level representative talks, 
I tend to be a pessimist in the like things change a lot slower. And so there tends to be a lot more hangover from things. But one thing that I found in her talk and in the, the Q&A thereafter um, that was kind of optimistic, at least for me, was this discussion of the need to invest positively um, in American markets um, and in American manufacturing, right? So such focus on the trade war and trying to change the way that things are produced outside of this country is only half or even probably less than half of the equation, right? And so when things turn more inward and looking at our own process and our own economic integration, right? Not only social integration, but also economic integration. Um, there are some, you know, some carrots you can put there instead of sticks, if you will, right? So, so yeah. the, the positive reinforcement. Uh, and so, you know, as, as someone well out of her depths here, um, my, my general thought is just that, that positive investment um, within the United States um, and within our own economic structures that make it more cohesive. Well, if you are speaking out of your depth, I mean, you're still the kind of person I would much rather have making decisions than people who claim to be well within their depths and are making very bad decisions. Yeah, can I add something to So I agree with Sam, and I want to add that this is a moment where we could be drawing precisely the wrong lessons from China, right? There's a lot of talk and envy of Chinese industrial policy uh, in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, I think this is this is to Sam's research area. I think the success of the China model not does not come from centralized policies, or at least not alone, but in allowing for local experimentation mm -hmm. and adapting to sort of local Absolutely. circumstances and investing in those um you know, small examples that work, right? We we don't have sort of successful clusters emerging around Shenzhen because, right, of the government said, like, you are going to make drones and you are going to make, right, OEM right, electronics exactly. per se. And I think the danger is in the US, right? We And China has this massive bureaucracy to do industrial policy and they still do it, according to our peers, right? They do it poorly a lot of the time. And so for the US to take the lesson and say, we got it, we need to have the American right, uh, industrial policy, and yet our bureaucracies, uh, the U.S. is, you know, built into its DNA as a small state, right? The federal government's dramatically under-resourced. You want to under-resource federal government to try to do this massive, ambitious kind of policies, you're going to get something like the USTR exclusion process, where you hire 90 random people off the street and tell them to figure out if a product is helping or hurting the Made in China 2025 initiative. It's a disaster. Yeah, so yeah. I, I really hope that we don't go down mm -hmm. that road and learn the wrong lessons and undermine kind of the source of American strength. This is 10 foot tall syndrome. This is what it comes what it comes from. You know, we suddenly see, you know, and but we've mis misdiagnosed what it is that, that has made China apparently 10 feet tall. It's just... Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I look forward to having both of you guys back on again. I, I'm I'm looking forward to reading that, that next paper of yours. And uh, you guys seem to work really well together as a team. So uh, I hope that that continues that collaboration. Thanks so much to both of you. The paper, again, is called Political Risk and Firm Exit, Evidence from the U.S.-China Trade War. We'll put a link to it on the podcast page so you can download it from the 21st Century China Program at UCSD's GPS. If you want to look more closely at the data and everything... I can't wait to have you guys both back on. You're, you're fantastic. Uh, but let's move to recommendations. First, let me quickly remind people that 
The Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work we're doing with the podcast or the other shows in the network, like this new one that we've got coming out really soon, which you'll be listening to next week, I hope, then, you know, the, the way to support us is to subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter, which is just a fantastic Monday through Friday roundup of, I mean, it's not more than a roundup. It's a really comprehensive newsletter. Uh, you know, set of links and, and summaries to all the stuff that's happening that you need to know about that's happening in China. So check it out, help us out. And uh, if you are a school, a program, if you're an NGO, if you're a diplomatic mission somewhere, if you're a company and you're interested in a group discount, write to alex at subchina.com and he'll set you up. Okay, on to recommendations. Sam, why don't you start us off? What do you have for us? Sure. Uh, so I'm going to recommend another podcast and specifically an episode, a recent episode from that podcast. So um, this season on Invisibilia from NPR, mm. uh, they've been focusing on friendships and friendship dynamics. And so just off the off the bat, I think it's a really interesting topic as we emerge from our, our stay-at-home orders and as someone who is traditionally lived a very mobile lifestyle, we'll say, with friends very widespread geographically. It's kind of made me rethink social dynamics and friendships. But specifically, uh, there's a recent episode titled uh, International Friend of Mystery. Ah. It introduces the memoirs of Dr. Kathin um, Verdery. Uh, and she's a distinguished professor of anthropology at uh, the City University of New York in the, the Graduate Center. And Professor Verdery spent many years doing her research in Romania um, in the 70s and the 80s at a time when the state security was running a, you know, a very bottoms up surveillance um, mm-hmm. state. Uh, and in her memoirs, uh, which the, the episode is based off of, um, which I can't recommend because I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure it will be excellent when I do get to read it a little bit later this year. She talks about discovering the secret police file on her. Uh, and so it's 3,000 pages of documents, of pictures, of reports that her friends and her acquaintances wrote and it builds this case of how she herself was a spy while she was doing her academic research on peasants um and agriculture oh my gosh. uh and and she was not of course a spy right she was not of course a right. spy um and but it makes her re-examine like on the professional level right it makes her re-examine her pers- her positionality and research as a foreigner but also the friends and connections that she made and as somebody who spent, you know, Jack and I are friends from the field, right? Uh, he arrived. But you don't know what he's reported on. You <laughs> you <have> no idea. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, ha- I had friends who um, admitted to me after, you know, years that they had conversation amongst themselves about whether or not I was a spy. Um, and the, uh, they decided in the end that I wasn't, which I'm not, um, but they decided in the end that I wasn't because my apartment was, uh, was too low quality to, to be a spy, that surely a spy would have (laughs) more resources than a graduate student had in, in finding housing in Beijing. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was really, really interesting. That's just really good cover. That's what it is. (laughs) You know, it reminds me that your description of it sounds so much like this book by Timothy Garton Ash called The File. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's a really well-known historian and, and the, the Stasi had an extensive file on him 
and he, he got to see it. So yeah, yeah, that's that sounds great. I, I've seen my file from the outside when I was detained once. They they slammed this thing down and they sh- they flipped through it just to show me how many photos they had of me. That was that was yeah, an unpleasant experience. But uh, yeah, I don't think I would want to know. Love, I'd love the. I don't think I would want to know. I do want to see that file though. Okay, <laughs> good good one. That's uh, Invisibilia. Yep. That that episode, international friend of mystery. Jack, what you got for us? Yeah, so mine's a little bit more prosaic. I have to check out that episode. That sounds great. Um, yeah. I started listening to this podcast uh, when I was a student, and I think you have a lot of students in you know in your uh, audience uh, who's interested in China and maybe studying China. So my recommendation is the Masters of Chinese Economic and Political Affairs (MCEPA) degree at uh, um, UC San Diego's GPS program. It's the best group of colleagues um, and mentors that you'll be able to find. And you'll get to hopefully write for the China Focus blog, which I advised for like five years while I was there as a graduate student. It's a that really good great. community. It's a really great blog. So, I, I, re- I totally recommend that. You did a fantastic job with that, Jack. You had a really good job. I mean, that's how you registered of- on my radar first. I mean, that's how I, how I knew who you were first from reading that. So Very cool. Okay, so my recommendations. First of all, I just want to catch you up that I did finish Jonathan Franzen's novel um, called Crossroads, which I recommended last week, and it was it just kept getting better. It was so great. I did not cry like I did after reading Freedom, but on balance, I think it's a better novel. Um, but my recommendation today, though, is another novel by Guy Gavriel Kay, who's my favorite fantasy and historical fiction writer. I recommended his faux Tang Dynasty book, Under Heaven, and his faux El Cid, you know, Iberian Peninsula, uh, 10th century book called The Lions of Al-Rasan before. This time, my recommendation is A Song for Arbon, A-R-B-O-N-N-E, which is set in a fictionalized Occitan Leguadoc, as it's sometimes said, the southern part of France. And it's based very loosely, less, less tightly than some of these other uh, sort of historic, loosely historical ones on on the Albigensian Crusade, um, mm-hmm. we went after the 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 poor you know Cathars in uh, southern France. Uh, this guy's work is super addictive. He's just so good. He knows how to just sort of tug at the heartstrings of that sixteen or seventeen year old boy in in you. Uh, you know that kind of it, it just reminds me of of that that feeling the first time I read Tolkien. That just kind of soaring wow. kind of expansive heroic romantic thing and it, it's a it's a great feeling so check him out he actually wrote most of the silmarillion uh he worked with christopher oh, really? tolkien on it but he's really the guy who's behind it and one thing that he does which he's unafraid to do is he embeds real poetry in his work i mean he just like will and, and then you know the then the uh, the jongleur read this poem or he sang this song and then mm-hmm. the, the lyrics are in there and, and they're all really good they're all really good is there anyway. a good audiobook for this, Kaiser? There is, yeah. I mean, there's all I've done most of them on audiobook. They're all really good. I think nice. all his stuff is on audio. It's 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 quite good. Have you read the what is it? The River of Smoke, the Poppies sort of trilogy. Um, no, no. Do you know about this one? You might. I think you probably like this one. It's also historical fiction. It's about the opium trade, sort of in the you know China linking to India, linking to Southeast Asia, and yeah, that sounds Europe great. Following through it. Yeah, Amitav so, Ghosh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, lo- I know Amitav Ghosh. Great, great. Oh, I, I know now that you mentioned yeah, I do know that series. I, I will put that on my list. Thanks a lot. Let's put that on the, the recommendations list as well. Here, I'll, I'll make sure that it goes on. 
So you guys, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. And uh, congrats on the paper and, and on the, uh, the, the pieces that you placed afterward. All right. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We'd be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.